0: Well, good morning to you all. Uh, after a brief break last week, we return to the book of Revelation, to those words of Jesus to the, the seven churches. Uh, and just to recap briefly, we've worked our way through chapter one, where we saw Jesus, or John saw a vision of Jesus standing among the seven churches. And the seven churches were uh, pictured as, as lampstands. And then we moved on into chapter two, Uh, after John falls at the feet of Jesus as though dead, which is probably, you know, an entirely appropriate reaction for someone who's just had such a vision. Jesus reassures him and then he proceeds to dictate these letters to each of the seven churches in asia minor and the first letter was to that hard working church in ephesus who had persevered who had endured much hardship but somewhere along the way they had forsaken the first love that they had known the passion in their relationship with the lord had dried up remember repent and return to your first love, says Jesus to them. Rekindle that passion that they once had. And then the second letter you might remember was to the church in Smyrna, that church that was living in bitter circumstances, crushed under the weight of persecution, and yet spiritually so rich in their relationship with Christ. Be faithful even to the point of death, says their bridegroom and I will give you the crown of life. And today we move on to consider the third church that is listed there in Revelation, the church in Pergamum or Pergamos, as it was also known. Now, if you were to start out on a journey from Ephesus, which is where we began, Ephesus is on the the coastline of Turkey, so it's on the west of the country. And if you were to travel north after about 60 kilometres, you would come to that coastal city of Smyrna, which is where we were a couple of weeks ago. If you continue on in a northerly direction from Smyrna, about 110 kilometres, and then you move in uh, from the coast, about 30 kilometres, you will reach Pergamum, which is our destination for today. Pergamum is located in that part of Asia Minor, which was known as Mycenae back then. Today it is Turkey. Now, historically, Pergamum was one of the principal centres of Greek civilisation. But over time, Pergamum's rulers formed an alliance with Rome and eventually severed ties with the Greeks. The last of Pergamum's kings died without an heir. And so, as was detailed in his will, the Romans assumed control of the city in about 133 BC, making it the capital of the Roman province of Asia. Pergamum is best known as a centre of Greek culture and learning. There was a university there and the city was famous for its library and its medical centre. The medical centre, known as the Esclepian, was one of the best healing centres in the world. Galen, who was Pergamum's best known physician, worked there in conjunction with the Esclepian. He wrote around 500 works on medicine. And even today he is considered an important figure in medical history. Cures that were offered at the Asclepian included music, running water, walking barefoot, dream analysis, sun, water and mud bathing, surgeries, herbal remedies and honey cures. Which all kind of makes the place sound a bit like it was some kind of health retreat until you understand the actual process that was involved there. People came to, the per- to Pergamum from all over the world to be healed at the Asclepian by the god Esculapus, the Greek god of healing. And if you wanted to be healed, you would first undergo a ritual cleansing, you would offer sacrifices, you would drink a potion And then you would descend into what was called an inaccessible place where you would fall asleep in a room full of snakes and you would wait for a dream from Aesculapius. And when you awoke, you would tell your dream to the priest who would interpret the dream and prescribe a healing treatment for you. So whilst there was traditional medicine practice there like surgery, Um, And there was what we might call alternative therapies practiced there. Healing was very much a pagan religious experience. Aesculapius was commonly referred to as saviour and he was believed to have power over death. He was represented by a serpent, which explains the falling asleep in a room full of snakes. And this is why even today some of our great, medical professional bodies like uh, the Australian and the American Medical Associations continue to be represented or to have as on their logo uh, the serpent around the uh, the staff or the stick. Pergamum's library consisted of some 200,000 volumes. Now that's a large library even by today's standards but if you consider that each one of those volumes was written by hand. That's a pretty amazing library and it was second only to the Alexandrian library at the time. The city was also known for its production of parchment, which was required to maintain this huge library, um, particularly when relations with Egypt deteriorated and uh, and papyrus was hard to come by. Pergamon was also a centre of Caesar worship. It had a temple dedicated to Rome and it had attained the status of Neacorus, which was a rank that was granted by the Roman Senate to cities which had built temples to the emperor or had established cults to members of the royal family. Pergamon became the capital of Caesar worship and just as was the case in Smyrna, all citizens were expected to burn incense and make an annual declaration that Caesar is Lord. Failure to do so would make life extremely difficult and such was the case for Christians in that city. In addition to their fanaticism for Caesar worship, the usual pantheon of Greek gods was also worshipped at Pergamum and the city was home to many magnificent temples dedicated to to them. To give you an idea of the magnificence of some of these structures, in the 1880s, an archeologist discovered and excavated a massive altar to Zeus on the hill that overlooked the city. And those of you that have received the announcements this week, that email, I I put a photo in there of just what that altar looks like. It is enormous. It stood on a foundation that was 38 meters by 35 metres, just stop and think for a minute, just how wide 38 by 35 metres is, it's huge. And it was 15 metres high, set in a colonnaded enclosure. And it's, you can see it today in the Pergamum uh, Museum in Berlin. Well, that's a little bit about the city, but what about the church in Pergamum? Well, we know from Acts 16.8 that Paul, Silas and Timothy travelled through Mysia on their way to Macedonia. But there's no record in the Bible of them ever having had any ministry in Mysia on that particular journey. They may have, we just don't know. But what is more likely is that the gospel reached Pergamum via Paul's extended ministry in Ephesus. So Acts 19:10 tells us that in Ephesus Paul regularly held discussions in the lecture hall of Tyrannius and this went on for 2 years and that this ministry was so powerful that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord so it is likely that at some stage during Paul's ministry in Ephesus travelers who were moving between These cities would have taken the gospel with them and a community of believers would have been established there in Pergamum in the midst of what was a very pagan city. Now, if Smyrna was the church of Myrrh, the church of bitter circumstances, what was Pergamum? Well, the name Pergamum or Pergamos apparently has several meanings. It has been used to mean citadel or high tower. And this usage is likely to have become an accepted definition over time and it is appropriate since the city was built on top of a hill which rose about a thousand feet above the valley below. So this first meaning could describe what the city was like physically, it was built on a hill. But the second meaning is instructive for us today because I think it tells us what the church was like spiritually. The name is made up of two Greek root words, pergos, which means high tower, and gamos, which means married. We find gamos in words like monogamy or polygamy and it refers to marriage. So the literal translation of pergamos is married to the high tower. Now, I'm going to leave that one to sit with you for a little while and we'll come back to it later. Have a think about references to high towers in the Bible and see what you think it might mean for a church to be married to the high tower. So while you're pondering that one, let's have a look at what Jesus has to say to this church that was married to the high tower. Would you turn to Revelation? We're looking at chapter two, verses 12 to 17. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. likewise you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. repent therefore otherwise i will soon come to you and fight fight against them with the sword of my mouth whoever has ears let him hear what the spirit says to the churches to the one who is victorious i will give some of the hidden manner i will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Well, from the very first line there, this letter is set apart from the two that have gone before it because here the title that Jesus uses for himself holds something of a negative connotation. To Ephesus, he was the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands and that image you will remember was one of Jesus being present right there among his church. To Smyrna he introduces himself as the first and the last who died and came back to life and the image there is of Jesus having defeated death and come back to life which is kind of reassuring if you're a church that is facing death. But to Pergamum, he is the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. And that perhaps doesn't sound too bad. Maybe it's not positive and not negative until you get to verse 16, where Jesus calls the church to repentance. Otherwise, he'll come and fight against them with that sword. So right here at the very outset, we have indications that there could be some problems in this church at Pergamum. The sword symbolises his word and by it each one will be judged. Hebrews 4.12 puts it like this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrows. It judges thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The sword is double-edged because it is his word that brings us to repentance. But if we choose not to repent, then ultimately that same sword, the word of God, will be used as an instrument of judgment. So by his word, Jesus will separate the true church from the world. The next thing Jesus has to say to this church is, I know. And we've heard that before. It's a feature of each of these letters. To Ephesus, it was, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. To Smyrna, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. And here to Pergamum, Jesus says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. Now that's a commendation. It's something that they're doing well. Satan's influence was active in this city and yet Pergamum had remained faithful. Smyrna, you might remember, had a synagogue of Satan and that was a false kind of Judaism. But here in Pergamum, according to Jesus, was the very throne of Satan. Now, there are a number of possibilities for what that throne of Satan might be, and we can't be completely sure of which one of them Jesus is actually referring to or intending here. Some say it refers to this worship of Aesculapius. Remember, Aesculapius was the Greek god of healing, and people came from all over to seek healing from all kinds of illnesses and ailments, and he was represented by a serpent. And he was sometimes called saviour and he was said to have power over death. So their worship of Esculapius could be a good candidate for Satan's throne. Then there's that massive altar to Zeus said to look like a huge chair or throne because it's raised up at the sides and lower where the stairs are in the middle. Now, Zeus was the Greek god of the sky and he was considered by the ancients to be the father of all gods and all humans, the king, if you like, of the gods. So that massive altar to Zeus was also a worthy candidate for being Satan's throne. A third candidate for Satan's throne could be their prominence as a centre for emperor worship or the very worship of Rome itself, which elevates created human beings above the creator. Still others would argue that it's not the worship of any individual God in this great city that's being singled out here, rather it is that together, this beautiful grove where all of these magnificent temples were clustered together, which was the pride of Pergamum, was an abomination to God. And the worship practices that were used at these pagan temples led the people into moral decline. So whether any one of those four possibilities was in view or not, what is clear is that Satan was very active in this city and right there in the midst of it all was a church. And even in the midst of all of the evil that was going on around them in this city, Verse 13 tells us that this church had remained true to the name of Jesus and had not renounced their faith in him. Antipas is mentioned there in verse 13 as my faithful witness. What a wonderful compliment from the Lord to be his faithful witness. Now, don't get confused. We're not talking about um, Herod Antipas here. This Antipas was someone in the church by that name who was martyred for his faith in Jesus. The facts about this man have been lost to history, but legend claims, and I I say it's legend, um, claims that he was a local dentist who was killed for failing to participate in the worship of Caesar. And he was placed inside a hollow brass bull which was heated until it was white hot. Now it's legend, it's not biblical fact, but what is clear is that within Pergamum, there were people of exceedingly great faith and Antipas was one of them and there were others who had held strong and did not renounce their faith even when their friend Antipas was killed. Nevertheless, Jesus holds a few things against this church. The first of these is that they have people within the church who hold to the teachings of Balaam. Now you'll find Balaam's story within the book of Numbers, in chapters 22 to 24, and then a little bit in chapter 31. Israel had defeated a number of the surrounding nations and had travelled to the plains of Moab. So Balak, the king of Moab, sends for a prophet by the name of Balaam to come and pronounce a curse on Israel. Balaam asks God about this. God says, no, don't do it. So Balak sends a bigger contingent to go and get Balaam and offer him more money or gifts or whatever it was God allows him to go this time but only to speak what he tells him to speak so he goes and every time Balaam opens his mouth outflows blessings instead of curses eventually Balaam is ordered home by Balak and that might just have been the end of that except that it's not Balaam is ordered home, and then strangely in the next chapter, chapter 25, chapter 25 details the rapid decline of Israel into sexual immorality and Baal worship. And it all seems very odd until we read two little verses from a few chapters later in chapter 31, chapter 31 verses 15 to 16, which explain why the prophet who refused to curse God's people is viewed so negatively throughout the rest of the Bible. In those verses, we discover that Balaam had actually hatched a plan to use the Midianite women to seduce the men of Israel. He couldn't utter a curse, but intermarrying with these women caused the men to fall into sexual immorality and idolatry And so whilst he didn't utter that curse on Israel, he orchestrated one against her because ultimately God brought an end to that incident with a plague that killed 24,000 of them. So what are the teachings of Balaam referred to in this letter to Pergamum? Quite simply, Balaam taught compromise. He taught them to intermarry with the world around them, to intermarry with these foreign women and adopt their ways, which were the ways of the world. And that led them away from God. Likewise, says Jesus, you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now exactly what the Nicolaitans taught here has also been somewhat lost in history, but Jesus's use of the word likewise here indicates that this was another group that was causing the church to compromise with the pagan world that was around them. Two of the early church leaders, Irenaeus and Hippolytus, claimed that the Nicolaitans were those who followed the teachings of Nicholas of Antioch, who was a proselyte Jew. So a Jew who had converted from a pagan background, who later became a believer and was then made a deacon in the church. He's mentioned in Acts chapter six, verse five. Now, if that was correct, it would seem possible that a man who had changed his religion three times from pagan to Jew, proselyte Jew to Christian, might not have much trouble in adopting elements of all of those things into his own belief system. And the effect that this would have would be the same as the influence of Balaam on Israel. Compromise, a blurring of the lines between right and wrong, a mingling of the church with ungodly lifestyles and eventually a merging of the church with the world around it. Jesus will not stand for any of it. Repent, he says, turn around, have nothing to do with this. Keep yourselves separate from it. And if you don't, I'm coming to fight against you with the sword of my mouth. Judgment is coming. Now, compromise comes in many forms. Usually, it sneaks up on you. Few people would set out uh, as Christians to immerse themselves in something which they know is wrong. But slowly, slowly, step by step, each step doesn't seem so bad in itself. And eventually you turn around and realise how far you've come. During the reign of the Roman Emperor Constantine, uh, who was uh, 306 to 337 AD, Christianity grew to become the dominant religion of the Roman Empire. Constantine was the first Roman emperor to convert to Christianity and he was responsible for the end of the persecution of Christians in that empire. He became the patron of the Christian faith. He supported the church financially. He granted exemptions From taxes to the church, he returned property that had been confiscated. He promoted Christians to high office and he declared Sunday a day of worship. Now, this period is often called the triumph of the church or the peace of the church. But if you look at what happened in the church in those years or in the few hundred years that followed that time, this was peace that came at a high price and that price was compromise you see Constantine was Pontifus Maximus and what that meant was that he was the head of all the religions in the Roman Empire including the pagan and the mystery religions he appointed leaders over them and it was near impossible for the bishops in the Christian Church to refuse his desires Heathen priests became Christian priests during this time. Heathen temples became Christian places of worship. Christians took on heathen days of fasting and feasting for their own special days. The church became hierarchical during this time. All of the children uh, were required to be christened. Eventually, Christianity became the state religion. Many new converts were made, although many of these conversions happened in the context of perhaps in increasing one's own job prospects. The church grew, but at what cost? Pergamum made its, uh, paganism made its way into the church and the church became entwined with the government. Now, this is a complex issue because there was indeed much good that Constantine did for the church at that time. But the church has paid a high price for this union of compromise. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, An unholy church is useless to the world and of no esteem among men. It is an abomination, hell's laughter and heaven's abhorrence. The worst evils which have ever come upon the world have been brought upon her by an unholy church. The Apostle Paul says simply to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 15, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there? between Christ and Belial, who was a Hebrew name for Satan. James is a bit more forceful with his language, James 4.4, 4, adulterers and adulteresses, he says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Well, as we said back at the, the beginning this morning, Pergamum means married to the high tower and hopefully by now it is self-evident that being married to the high tower is not a good thing now Proverbs tells us that the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run into it and are safe that was a strong tower but high towers in the Bible often carry a quite different connotation What is the highest tower in the Bible that you can think of? Is it not the Tower of Babel, that symbol of the pride and the arrogance of the Babylonians who thought they could build a tower that would reach the heavens? Isaiah also twice uses high towers as a symbol of pride and arrogance in the world. To be married to the high tower is to be married to the world and God won't stand for it, not in his church and since each of us are part of the church, not in our lives as individuals either. You know, when Lot parted ways from Abram and headed towards the fertile Jordan plain, did he realise that he was heading towards Sodom? When he decided to pitch his tents just outside of Sodom, the Bible certainly gives every indication that Sodom was well known for its wickedness. It wasn't long before Lot was no longer camped outside the city, he was inside the city. He was a resident of the city and he wasn't there on a missionary agenda. He was there for his own material gain. It is unlikely that he set out to end up in Sodom as one of the city's leaders, but that's the nature of compromise. It creeps up on you. One thing leads to another, which leads to another, and something which previously would have been completely abhorrent to you, over time seems not quite so bad. You adjust to a new normal, and as you adjust all the while, your bar falls lower and lower. Lot first headed in the direction of Sodom because it was fertile, well-watered land that would be great for feeding and increasing the size of his flocks. Pretty soon he pitched his tents in the direction of Sodom. Next, he's living in the city. Next, Genesis 19.1 finds him sitting in the gateway of the city most likely as a member of Sodom's ruling council. A bit further on, we learn his daughters are betrothed to men in Sodom and Lot is referring to the mob that is surrounding his house wanting to have sex with his guests as friends or brothers and he's offering his own daughters to them. Lot was a man of genuine faith. There's no indication in his story that he ever lost that. But Lot was married to the high tower. He had compromised with the world and so he paid dearly for it. Everything that he treasured ultimately was lost to him in Sodom. His wealth, his status and his family. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. That is the kind of church that Christ desires, one that is pure, one that is not married to the ways of the world. Repent, says Jesus, otherwise he will come and separate out the true church from the world with the sword of his mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Now, what exactly each of these three things are has been the cause for plenty of debate Manna, we know, is that flaky honey bread of heaven that God provided to sustain the Israelites in the wilderness. Why is it hidden? Well, some of Israel's manna was placed inside a gold jar in the Ark of the Covenant, so there's probably some sort of illusion going on there, but manna points to Jesus as being the bread of life, hidden from those who do not know him. To him who overcomes will be given the food from heaven to sustain life forever, the bread of life. As to the white stone, there are loads of theories on that one. I won't run through all of them because it'll take a long time, but I'll briefly run through the two that sit best with me. The first of them has legal connotations. When a member of a jury was in favour of acquittal, they would hand in a white stone. So by this reckoning the white stone is a mark of acquittal. An alternative theory suggests that in the games that were popular in these cities, victors would be given a white stone and often that stone would be inscribed with their name and it was part of their prize and that stone was to be used as an entry pass to the victor's festival that would happen after the game. So by this reckoning, the white stone is a mark of victory. Now there are at least five other plausible explanations. Truth is, we don't know for sure. Likewise with the new name known only to the one who receives it. Perhaps the new name represents a new character We don't know for sure. All that we know is that the name is unique to the one who receives it. It is a heavenly name and it is given by Christ himself. So it speaks of this intimate fellowship that each of us will have with him. Persecution is not the real enemy of the church. Compromise is. Satan's best strategies are not those which are obvious but those which seem innocent enough. And we hear it today. We're being welcoming and inclusive. Well, are we? Or is what we're doing compromising? Give a little bit here, give a little bit there and then suddenly Christians aren't really that much different from the world around them. It's that frog in the the boiling water Analogy, put him in when it's boiling hot and he's going to struggle and try and get out as quickly as he can but put him in when the water's cold and bring up the temperature slowly and he won't realise until he's cooked. It's easy for us to read these letters to the seven churches and to think of the church in Pergamum or the church under Constantine and judge them for their compromise but our culture today could just as easily be described as where Satan has his throne. We say that we wanna grow spiritually, but then we invest our time and energy elsewhere in meaningless activities. We don't have time to squeeze God in, but we seem to have time for an abundance of other things. We have an insatiable appetite for experiences and material things. We desire to fit in and not attract attention to ourselves. We need to examine our motivations and our attitudes. We need to examine whether the things that we're watching on TV or online reflect our desire for purity or whether they are indeed a reflection of compromise in our lives. Lot, I am sure, never imagined himself offering his own daughters to a bunch of rapists when he headed off with his cattle in the direction of those fertile pastures. But every step along the way, small, seemingly innocuous decisions had to be made and at the end of the day, the sum of each of those small decisions was huge. And so it is for us. Every day, every week, every month, every year, we make small, seemingly insignificant decisions and with each one, there's potential for compromise. If this letter was addressed to Pathway instead of to Pergamum, could we be sure that Jesus would find us true to his name? And if you answered yes to that question, what would his nevertheless be for us? Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. What would he have against us? Where are we prone to compromise? What would Jesus have against me? What would he have against you? Let's think about those things as we come before him in prayer lord will you show us will you point out to each one of us this morning these areas of our lives where we tend to compromise lord we want to be people to be a church that is presented as pure to just one husband we want to be presented as pure to Jesus Christ, our Lord. Forgive us for the times when we have compromised. Help us to recognise compromise for what it is, that we might confess it to you now, that we might repent of it and commit ourselves to once again walking in your ways. Amen. Well, may the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you today, tomorrow and always. Amen. Please don't forget to grab something to eat or drink after the song and to log in to Zoom for our virtual morning tea, a chance to catch up with one another. It is lovely to see one another after all of this time apart. It's just great to see faces, even if it's only in that virtual sense. Would you join with me now as we're led by Ed and Sarah in our closing song, Lord, you are my God.
1: me